Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 9th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Inflation is falling. Now, while it had peaked at 9%, inflation is currently running at 7%. It's expected to fall to 4.5%. So why is grocery inflation at 16%? It's no wonder people are giving out when the price of many basic food items is skyrocketing. The retail minister, Neil Richmond, says he's compiling a list of complaints about what people say are extortionate prices to see if inflation is being driven by greedflation, with supermarkets cashing in on the increase in the cost of living price gouging. The Minister has brought forward a meeting of the Retail Forum by seven weeks. Tomorrow he will tell supermarkets he doesn't want to introduce price caps, but he will also tell retailers that they will have to bring prices down themselves over the next six weeks before the forum is due to meet again on the 21st of June. Now, that may work, but what happens if in six weeks from now prices don't come down. Sinn Féin says action is needed right away and it is to use its private members' time in the Dáil this evening to call on the government to instruct the CCPC that's the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission to investigate why groceries are as expensive as they are. The motion is being tabled by Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Enterprise, Louise O'Reilly who joins us now and a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us on the programme today. You're estimating that that on average we're paying about €1,200 a year extra for groceries. Yeah, that's the figure. And inflation, grocery inflation year on year is running at about 16.6%. Um, So we can see that it's outstripping all of the, you know, even even the very high rising rates, uh, it's outstripping those. But we also see from a a survey carried out by uh, the Unite Trade Union that in real terms, wages have fallen by about 70, an average of 76 euros per week, which effectively means inflation is eroding the value of your euro. So it's not, nobody's received a pay cut, but it's the, it, the feeling is, is is as if you have received a pay cut because you obviously have less, your, your money goes um, far less further than it's used to. So you have people now, Michael, and I, and I spoke to a woman at the weekend and this just broke my heart. And she said to me that she was dreading the school holidays because she said, you know what the kids are like? They're off school, they're there all day, and all they do is ease, ease, ease. And she said, one thing you have to say no to your kids 
for a treat or for a day out or for something like that. But it's quite another to have to say no to them for food. So people are making very difficult choices. And I suppose what we're doing today is we're using our private members' time to highlight this to government. I understand that the, the junior minister has taken some action, but I don't get any sense of urgency coming from the government and certainly from the people that I'm talking to. They're telling me that their situation is urgent. So we had made a pledge to use uh, our position as the lead party of opposition and use our voices to represent those people who are, are being squeezed and that's what we'll be doing this evening in the dark. We've become accustomed to, to asking if uh, people need to, to decide to eat or heat. Uh, very, very difficult not to eat as human beings. Uh, it, it's fundamental to our existence. Uh, but I wonder... Uh, if the cost of groceries, that extra €1,200 a year that we're paying on average, and everybody knows uh, the price of of everything in the supermarket is only going in one direction, but if that's feeding into the tough decisions that people are are making, because the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities, the CRU, is to report today that 23% of gas customers were in arrears uh, that's the 31st of March uh, and that's 160,399 customers which is really, really incredible. That's absolutely shocking and for those people, Michael, when you're, when you're really balancing your budget, you know, you, you can't say to people shop around and you can't because they're already doing that and you can't say to people cut back because they have cut back to the bone but when you are really managing finite resources if you're on a fixed income, if you're a carer or a pensioner or somebody on a low income, when you're trying to manage like that, what you would generally do is use the time when it's a little bit warmer to catch up on bills if you've fallen behind. And a lot of people would be used to that balance and act during the year, that in the summer, the heating's not on, you get a chance to catch up if you have fallen into arrears. Unfortunately, with the way the grocery shopping is going, the, the cost of groceries, the cost of the messages going up and up and up, people aren't going to be able to do that balancing out and they're going to head into the winter in arrears and at risk of uh, at mm. risk of disconnection. Now, we obviously know that the government will, I'm sure, put in a, a winter ban on disconnections um, and that would be the only right thing to do. However, people are building up debts on their utilities that they would normally clear during the, the summertime. And with the cost of groceries going the way it is, they're just not going to be able to do that. So this is why when I say there's no sense of urgency, I really do appreciate the government doing what they're doing. We have called on them to convene the retail forum. They've done that. But I think that there needs to be more than just talking on this. We need to see the government take some action. So rather than bring the anecdotal evidence to the supermarkets and, and to the to the retailers and to the, the, the retail forum tomorrow, I would like to see the minister referring this to the CCPC for investigation. So we get some hard evidence mm. about you know, if, if there is, I'm not saying there is price gouging going on, but if there is, well, then that needs to be rooted out and stopped. Well, I was going to ask you about the price of gas, uh, because it's so expensive now that nearly a quarter of customers are in arrears, uh, which I, I think is really staggering uh, and very, very worrying. Uh, but uh, probably not too surprising because we all know our energy bills have gone through the roof, but it's not just our energy bills. The supermarkets have been paying uh, huge amounts uh, in terms of light and heat and all of that sort of stuff. Oh, no, absolutely. I'm not disputing that their input costs have gone up, but we do know that recently uh, the cost of electricity has been reduced by 15% for, uh, for, for businesses by several of the providers. They haven't 
given the same cost reduction to the domestic user. So still where prices might be coming down, input costs might be coming down on the retail end of things, it doesn't seem to be getting passed on to the customer. The very opposite is happening. And the other uh, people, the group of people we need to think about in this, Michael, are small farmers, because the last thing we need is the burden of this being transferred onto the producers and the growers. Yeah. That wouldn't be right. I don't so think any of them will tell you they're getting more for their produce. Oh, they're not. No, but do, they're but does, it, do, does it come down to that gap uh, between inflation generally and grocery inflation? Uh, at the moment, inflation is running at 7% and grocery inflation, as you say, 16.6%. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the issue, is that it is outstripping, um, it, it is outstripping inflation, but more importantly, it is massively outstripping wages. So in real terms, the value that you can get out of your euro at the end of the week when you're getting your messages has actually fallen. And just to, to go back to the, the issue around small farmers, what we want to see the government do is to bring an amendment into the Food Safety Supply Chain Bill, which will allow for uh, a regulator to investigate anti-competitive practices. So what we need is to ensure that we protect farmers and growers in this because they are not the, passing on any decreases uh, to them is not the solution. They're already being squeezed as it is. But what we do need to see is the retailers, the, the major multiples, the big supermarkets, explaining why it is that uh, that the rate of inflation on groceries is outstripping everything else at the moment and also given a commitment to bring prices down. Mm. I don't want to see the minister come out on Wednesday to say, well, they said they're going to do their best. We want to see targets. We want to see um, a, the, the retail forum meet again, not in seven weeks, but in two or three weeks' time. And we see in other European countries like France, when the government had, had intervened, they, they pulled together the retailers. The prices came down very, very quickly. They came down within a fortnight. We want to see that happening here mm. because, as I've said, people are starting to dread the summer. And that just broke my heart, Michael, when uh, when I spoke to that lady. That she said, like, you yeah. should be looking forward to the summer mm. and spending time with your kids, not dreading it because it's going to be uh, mean extra grocery bills and, and extra food you have to buy that you can't afford. Well, your motion does ask the government to amend uh, the Agricultural and Food Supply Chain Bill, but uh, like that lady and many others, that may not make the groceries affordable and even if the prices come down, uh, it, it may not be ideal. So you're also asking for welfare uh, payments uh, to increase too. Yeah, and I think what we need to do is go back to Budget 2023 um, in September of last year. The government had an opportunity then to ensure that social welfare rates were at least keeping pace with uh, with inflation, but they haven't. So people who are on a fixed income, people are carers, pensions, uh, pensioners, any other social welfare recipients, they have seen uh, what the, what they're getting week on week fall and fall in value. So they're on a fixed income. Even if you're a low-income worker, you might get the chance to do a bit of overtime or work some extra hours. But if you're a carer or if you're a pensioner or if you're on a social welfare payment, you're not going to be able to supplement that uh, that income. And the core rates of social welfare and Social Justice Ireland and others will tell you that increasing the core rate is the only real way to, to tackle poverty. But they weren't increased to match or even come close to inflation. And inflation has run far ahead of the money that people are living on. And it means that people are starting to make, as you said, those really hard choices between heating and eating. And mm. it's now down to, to the bone. It's down to crunch time for people. And I think that's why we need to see an examination of the core social welfare rates. We have looked for um, an income adequacy commission to look at ensuring that social welfare rates 
are kept up to date and people who are, um, you know, on carers, on pensioners, don't fall too far behind. The danger is that people are going to fall very far behind and that's why we're calling on the government to, to step in and take emergency steps because we believe that there is an emergency now for people in terms of grocery prices. In terms of how serious the emergency is or when it's going to end, if it's going to end, uh, the Minister has uh, the power, the government has uh, the power to introduce price caps. The Minister hasn't said he's going to do that. He has said he doesn't want to do that, but that prices must come down. There's an implied threat in uh, those two statements combined. Uh, Sinn Féin has stopped short uh, in your motion uh, Louisa O'Reilly of uh, asking for price cuts. Are, are you for or opposed pr- price caps a bigger pardon? Well our motion calls on the government to use every lever that they have and price caps is certainly one of those but there would be no need for price caps if the target was set and if the supermarkets could agree to bring the prices down it's not necessary there are complications with price caps but I do think the government shouldn't be making a statement at this stage to say that they don't want to do it. I think if necessary they'll have to. The legislation to introduce price caps is I think about 20 years old at this stage and now we have we see a great, much greater variety. So if you were to say to cap the price of bread go into the supermarket now compared to 20 years ago the, 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 a vast array of bread that is available it might be tough to do it but I think it is possible to do it and I think at this stage the government should be looking at how they can do that and how that that's, how that's going to work but they also need to be saying to the retailers at the retail forum tomorrow that they want to see deliverable they want to see targets set and they want to see those targets met and if that happens there's no need for price caps so you know I mean if the if the minister is serious, he'll put a short time frame on it and he will have them back in, not in seven weeks' time, but in two to three weeks' time to look at the impact, if they, if they can make commitments, to look at those impacts, to look at the impact of those commitments on the money that people are having to spend every week. And we need to see the bills coming down. The bills have uh, gone up by an average of €1,200, Euros, which for people on a fixed income, uh, pensioners, mm. carers, people on low income. And people with kids, you know, trying to make their money stretch. It's not possible. People are already stretched breaking point now. Yeah, you, you don't have it or if you end up with it it's because you haven't paid your gas bill and you'd be suspicious that that is the case for some of uh, those customers uh, but nearly a quarter of people in arrears. Louise, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. We'll hear more about your motion through the day and indeed I'm sure over the coming days. Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Enterprise. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing uh, this morning, the Minister for Sport, Thomas Byrne, is to meet today with the GAA, the FAI, the IRFU and Sport Ireland. Uh, Thomas Byrne is on the line and Minister, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, You're going to be discussing racism and violence with a particular emphasis, uh, I think, on attacks against referees. Yeah, look, I mean, it's obviously become a big issue and rather than me simply condemn, although I do condemn every instance, condemn every single time, I mean, we have to come up with a plan uh, as to how to deal with it. I would say to be fair to the organisations, I think they are starting to address it. Uh, I asked Sport Ireland at the start of the year to work towards a, a, you know developing a code of conduct. I think that's work that we will you know check progress on today. Uh, we will look at some elements of good practice that's going on within the organisations and the bad practice as well. But also to be very clear, like I mean, if a referee is assaulted, then that's a matter for the Gardaí. 
and referees and clubs and the sporting community need to feel empowered that they can ring the Gardaí uh, in these situations where something uh, reaches the level of a criminal offence. Um, and that's that's very, very clear. Um, and we need to send a message out there that, you know, violence, yeah. racism, simply not tolerated in sport. And that's not what it's there for. It's there for, for people to enjoy themselves. And yes, there's competition. Yes, there's passion. But there's some things you just can't do. Mm. And that seems to be the culture that it is accepted, it is tolerated, and it's put down to passion and uh, the way people uh, get uh, so caught up in a game and that uh, it's almost justified as a way of expressing yourself. No, well, it's not justified, and let's be clear about that. And I don't think anybody can justify it, and nobody's going to. And a clear message today would be that you know people should feel empowered to ring the Gardaí uh, prosecutions. We know some examples. We can't go into individual mm-hmm. cases on the radio, but there are examples where people are being prosecuted, uh, and the organisations themselves have been developing their standards in terms of the length of bans for people uh, to get involved. I mean, the one message that I would like to get out to everybody at all levels, and this is not simply about racism or violence, uh, the referee never changes their mind. I mean, so there's no point arguing with them. I think that we need to start with that premise that the referee's decision is final um, and so that we don't allow things then to escalate up uh, to the level of violence uh, against referees in particular. Uh, it's a, it's a, it is a problem. Mm. Um, referees at various points in different counties uh, have gone on strike or refused to ref matches. Um, and in fairness, there's a lot of public focus on it. And my job today, I think, is to bring the focus of the organisations and uh, the major organisations together uh, to see what the best practice is uh, and to try to move on from this and try to put an end to, to violence and indeed to racism in sport as well. Should the sanctions be more stringent? Well, you can't get much more stringent than, than a jail sentence if you're convicted of it. That's true. Has that ever happened? Well, there are prosecutions out there at the moment, mm. so uh, yeah. let's, let's let those prosecutions happen. I know, but and, generally uh, you're talking about a, a one-match ban or two-match no, ban. No, no, I, think, I think we've seen examples there where lifetime bans have been brought in and five-year bans, etc. So these things, these things are starting to happen, and I think that that needs to be recognised. And, you know, this, this, this message, but the most important thing is that the message goes out that this simply can't happen. Um, and that we don't have to resort to these bans or to criminal sanctions because yeah. nobody wants that. Um, but we do need badly to get that message out there. I hate to turn a phrase, but a, a zero tolerance towards that type of behaviour. Well, there should always be zero tolerance towards violence. That's that's the bottom line. I mean, that's it's, it's criminal, mm. um, and that's that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the problem, I suppose, is that there's different levels of violence. Uh, I mean, people will uh, say that they acted violently against me if somebody's roaring and shouting at you, which is uh, lower on the scale, obviously, than taking lumps out of you. Well, I mean, look, I mean, if someone if someone assaults you, I mean, they hit you, they physically touch you or they threaten to touch you, mm. I mean, that can rise to the level of criminal sanction. Yeah. Um, in relation, to, so so that's, that should be relatively clear and it's a matter for the Gardaí to investigate and should never be tolerated in sport. It isn't part of sport. It's a pity that it's even come into the discussion in sport, but, but that's necessary because uh, of the instance that we've seen. Um, I think we, as I said, if we get back to basics on all of this, if we say that the referee's decision is final, and I mean, mm. I shouldn't need to say that. No, I've never seen a referee, and I go to two or three matches a week, I've never seen a referee change their mind. Um, and if people get that into their head, and uh, then there's no need to, to give out or to complain uh, or to give abuse to the ref or whatever. Um, so that message needs to be out there very, very firmly. And mm. I think part of the solution here is, um, you know, is education. I mean, we have a lot of, you know, 
right and correct um, relevant, you know, mm. a correct kind of emphasis on child protection and abuse and all yeah, that, that. But it's such a bad influence on children. I mean, that is one of the biggest problems with it. Should there be a season ban for anybody guilty of any form of physical assault? Well, I would have thought for physical assault, I think it would be much longer than that, quite frankly. Um, and then you go down the gradients after that. Mm. But I think what we have no, to but, but again, comes back to what's physical assault. If a fella's pushing another fella and uh, is acting threateningly, um, I, I mean, I would consider that to be an assault. Yeah, well, I mean, the emphasis here, of course, is on the, on the referee. I mean, that shouldn't come into the referee at all. Um, and the, the referee is empowered to, you know, enforce the rules of the game, whatever the particular game is. And clearly, you know, we're talking about contact sports here. There, there is contact here, and it'll be up to the referee then to make the decision as to whether the contact is within the rules of the particular game. That's, that's the way it is. That's the job of the referee. But we can't even do that if people aren't accepting the decisions of the referee. And I think what has to happen is, yes, there's been an emphasis on education in relation to child protection. That's really, really important, crucially important. But I think in the education of coaches, um, and some of the referees have spoken to me about this, we need an emphasis on you know the referee's decision being final in respect to the referee. Okay. Uh, and I think that, that then needs to be imbued into the whole system. OK, I have to ask you about GAA Go. I'm sure it'll be uh, something that'll be talked about today, given your party leader's comments yesterday that all GAA games should be free to wear. Uh, do you believe that should be the case? Well, look, uh, the 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 Taunister has made his views on this known over many, many years. And one thing I'll say for him is he's a genuine GAA fan, attends a huge amount of games, and is absolutely, I think what's happened with GAA a go over the past number of weeks is that major matches, particularly in the sphere of hurling, haven't been on free to air and they've been on this GAA Go app. And the difficulties I think that we all have with this GAA Go app, I'm not sure watching a hurling game on your phone is ideal. Um, it's not that easy for anybody actually uh, to watch it on the telly um, and particularly so for elderly people. So there's a huge amount of exclusion I think going on and what, what we're looking for really in the tonnage to look for this yesterday was review of GAA Go. I mean, yesterday would be matches there that no broadcaster will ever have time uh, to put on the television of course the, the radio LMFM and other radio stations do a great job as well and we listen to them too uh, being free to air but not every match is going to get uh, live coverage so there is a place for the app for matches that people want to watch that wouldn't have a huge audience but I think you know, I think we're going to have to do a better job between RTE and the GEA of deciding which matches should be on TV and which should be behind the paywall I mean the idea that the GEA as a major sporting organisation would put major games behind behind a, a paywall of an app on a phone um, I think is probably the wrong decision and that's why we're looking for a review of this. Right. Uh, are, are you going to intervene directly? Well, I think we'll, I'll certainly be bringing it up with the GEA when I meet them today on this issue after the meeting. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, our powers of intervention aren't very strong. The Tonister has set out his views over many years in relation to the Sky deal, which has now gone, uh, and now in relation to this. And I think he has a point, and a lot of GEA fans would, would, would agree uh, that the scheduling of matches has led to this particular problem, but there's a huge amount of important matches all at the one time, or uh, in the one period of time, and it's not possible to show them all on TV. Yes, you can put them on an app. But I think we need to review when matches are taking place. And then RTE, I think, quite frankly, um, and I'm not criticising the local radio stations, but RTE needs to do a better job of, of deciding which matches to show because we're looking to increase participation in sports. Um, it's, it's like GA and is not a commercial thing in this country. And if we want to increase participation in sports, we're going to have to people looking at sport, mm. getting inspiration from really good sports people and going out then to play sports. I remember as a child watching Wimbledon on TV 
and the whole street will be out for the next couple of weeks playing tennis on the street. And that's exactly, the inspiration yeah. that kids yeah. in particular get and they can get from hurling so, as so, well. So is it a question more so for RTE than it is for the GAA? Oh, it's between both of them because they're both joint partners on this on this yeah. app. So they, they both run the app. So it's a question for both. Um, you know, obviously the GAA have a very strong interest in it. The members of the GAA have a very strong interest. And in, I think the Tonish is speaking, you know, very strongly as a member of, of the GAA yeah. uh, and indeed RTE as well. So there's, there's questions to, to, to be answered, certainly. But I would say, though, that, as I said, local radio has provided good service and TG Car has provided fantastic service, particularly bringing women's sports before. And again, it shows yeah. you when people have access to watching these games, it inspires more people to take part. And not everybody can go uh, to the stadium or to the pitch to watch the game. Um, but if they watch it on TV, it can inspire them. So we've got to broaden that out as much as possible. And I agree there will always be a place for the app because not every match is going to be on TV. And there's matches there. I remember during the pandemic that we might have wanted to watch um, that we couldn't because the GAA Go app at that time uh, was only available abroad. Um, and I think that, look, it's like everything else, there's a balance to be achieved. Right. Uh, will you be talking about the drink uh, today? Uh, I'm not sure if it's a, a problem in rugby or soccer, but a report in the Irish Journal of Medical Science uh, had spoken to 111 elite GAA players, uh, and it's discovered that there's a harmful drinking culture uh, among the elite GAA players. Uh, the authors say that uh, the culture uh, amongst the elite GAA was of drinking to excess as opposed to drinking in moderation. Look, I think it's a very interesting study. I read the study and it's, it's self-reporting what GA players are saying themselves and elite GA players are saying themselves. The study is very impressive because quite a lot of GA players respond to, to this research. I, I think we need to look at what it's saying. I think, to be honest, I think it's more of a societal problem than particularly for the GA. But, mm. but you know, I, don't, I haven't seen studies on, on, on rugby or soccer or other particular sports. Uh, but there's no doubt that there's a societal issue with alcohol here, and alcohol harm is costing uh, a huge amount in this country, if we're honest about it, in terms of jobs, in terms of people's health, mm. uh, in terms of people's ability to have a job, etc. So this is certainly an issue, and I think the GA would do very well to look at this study as their own players. Uh, who are talking, you know, who are mm. talking and who are making these points. And it seems uh, that they're able to abstain uh, during a season, uh, but uh, then they uh, go mad. Full duck or no dinner, uh, as one player put it. Uh, and uh, apparently uh, children as young as 11 or 12 are, are drinking during county final celebrations. Well, I saw that point and I think that's that's outrageous and that certainly should not be happening anywhere. And I think really we need to be very, very clear with GA clubs underage not not being involved with alcohol in any way whatsoever. Um, celebrations involving overage and underage people, I would question whether they should be taking place in pubs myself, uh, if there's a mixture. Um, there's GA responsibility, there's parental responsibility, and indeed the government, I think, um, Department of Health in particular, will have to look at this study uh, and see how this marries with the various work that's being done uh, on alcohol in the country, because there's a lot of, a lot of work being done in relation to alcohol. It doesn't always get popular support. Um, at, at different times there'll be different issues in the door between driving rules and with mm. alcohol advertising bans etc etc uh, but there's clearly a problem and that problem has been identified by GEA players in this study Okay Minister thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning that is uh, the Minister for Sport Thomas Byrne who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, to the Middle East where it's been a dreadful 24 hours and it looks uh, most likely that it will become even worse. Could you imagine waking up this morning before dawn to hear the sound of warplanes because that's what happened in Gaza. 40 Israeli warplanes and helicopters attacked in a number of pre-dawn waves. Airstrikes across Gaza, they hit homes and you can only manage uh, imagine the panic uh, amongst residents. Three women and three children were amongst the 12 people who died which also included three commanders of Islamic Jihad. 20 people are said to have been injured otherwise. Kevin Nocton of Amnesty International Ireland joins us now and a very good morning to you Kevin and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, This was a horrific attack wasn't it? It's, it's certainly, yes, absolutely. And this kind of cycle of violence uh, that's been going for years now is, is a key part of uh, a result of the apartheid system that Israel has kind of created. And that's what our campaign is focused on uh, at the moment, is to ensure that, that, that going forward in Israel and Palestine, it's a human rights-based approach on dialogue. Uh, and as part of that, you know, we're, we're asking people now to try and get involved. So tomorrow, actually, what we're doing is we're having a picnic against apartheid. Uh, outside Leinster House on Kildare Street. Um, and we're asking people to come down at 1pm, uh, bring some food, bring some blankets, and we're going to take a stand against Israeli apartheid because it's been going on now for, for 75 years uh, and it, it's something that's having a direct impact on, on Palestinian lives and people in Gaza, as you said, mm. uh, and the West Bank and, and millions of others in Israel itself and in neighbouring countries. As I understand it, you'll be joined by members of a, a new group, the Irish Anti-Apartheid Campaign for Palestine. Senator Francis Black is uh, to speak outside of Leinster House. Uh, this is taking place at, at one o'clock tomorrow, but it's the first of a, a number of picnics against apartheid that you're planning. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to have a couple across the country. This is kind of one of our big ones, and we're asking everyone to come down who's in Dublin, who wants to come to Dublin. And we're hoping as well that you know politicians will come out and join us, and we're going to have some food, we're going to have some music. So it's going to be kind of a joyous occasion, despite what's happening on, in the Middle East. It's going to be something to try and take back um, a bit of you know, you know uh, public space, because what happens to many Palestinians is they will try and enjoy their lives despite uh, the hardships that they face, and they'll be routinely moved on just by being in a public space in a large group. That's part of the apartheid. They're not allowed to get together regularly. They're separated from one another. Some live in Gaza, some live in West Bank and so on. So this is our way of showing solidarity with them um, by having a picnic of our own in a public space right outside our parliament building. Uh, And we hope as many people can join us as possible uh, as we call for Israel to dismantle this apartheid system. Right, uh, uh, and uh, attacks like uh, the one that happened last night, uh, I take it. Uh, there's accusations uh, of uh, both sides being terrorists, being made uh, by both sides. Uh, there's um, claim and counterclaim, if you like, which is pretty typical of uh, these attacks. But the might of uh, the Israeli army is really something to contend with. Uh, and when you think of 40 planes and helicopters like this going into a residential area uh, and dropping bombs, it's beyond belief. It really is. And, you know, Israel, unfortunately, um, is responsible for committing certain crimes against humanity, number one being apartheid. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something that we have to kind of keep working on because the apartheid system is what ensures the cycle of violence will continue. Uh, and by fragmenting and dispossessing the Palestinian population, 
they are left uh, as, a, as a discriminated group and they're a group of people that um, you know are not able to achieve the full rights that they want, uh, whereas Israel is able to control them and to dominate them, as mm. this kind of uh, has shown. Uh, they have killed the three commanders of Islamic Islamic Jihad. Uh, that was confirmed by the group, uh, which I, I think was uh, the objective of the operation. So the Israelis will be happy with that. But they also say uh, that uh, apart from targeting uh, those three commanders, uh, they struck 10 sites used to manufacture weapons uh, and military facilities in the region as well. Uh, would you believe that there's any truth? in that? Um, it was very hard to comment on that until the full facts are kind of known. So it's, it's something that will be seen in the coming days. Mm. Um, but it, it goes just, just, just to show that you know this, this cycle of violence has to end uh, and, and ending the apartheid system, we believe, would be the first step to doing so. Is an attack like this counterproductive uh, because Islamic Jihad now is vowing to respond with rocket fire? Yeah, well, I suppose violence is, is, is counterproductive in and of itself. You know, dialogue and human rights are the, are the best way to deal with, 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 with these things. And it goes to show that the tensions between the two communities, um, you know, it has to be brought under, uh, brought under control. And, and by doing that, the best thing to do is, would be to end the apartheid system because um, it doesn't give Palestinians the right to, to, to have their own freedoms, to have their own land. Um, and so the apartheid system, which is a crime itself under international law, beyond anything else that's happening, uh, that's kind of the fundamental problem that we believe. And that's what our report showed last year, was that the fragmentation of the population by dividing people up, by restricting their movements, restricting their access to health care and so on, this is the, the, the key human rights issue uh, right now in the Middle East. OK, but there is no dialogue, is there? There is no negotiation to speak of. Uh, uh, I mean, we have a, a very right-wing Israeli government intent uh, on um, taking control of uh, these lands uh, and one that looks on Hamas uh, uh, as a terrorist organisation. Well, I suppose that's kind of the key point of our campaign then is that we want to intensify the international dialogue around all of this get countries like Ireland to say something and to, and to recognise it as a part by go on to the UN level and have this as an international campaign. In the same way, like going back to apartheid, it happened in South Africa and there wasn't much dialogue in South Africa at the time between uh, the whites and, and the blacks. So it was because of the international community uh, and the, the kind of effort that was put in in Ireland by like the Duns workers and other groups that built over time uh, pressure on the South African government to end its apartheid system. So we believe that um, even if there's dialogue not happening on the ground at the moment in Israel and Palestine, outside of the region, groups like Amnesty, our activists, our supporters, our coalition partners, Mm. um, we can create that intensive pressure at an international level, which will force um, Israel to end its apartheid system and then hopefully um, create a, a space for dialogue in the future. Okay, so you're holding a picnic against apartheid, uh, as you call it, uh, tomorrow at one o'clock uh, in Leinster House, or outside Leinster House, uh, but it really is a, a protest, and you're asking people to come along uh, and protest with you. Yeah, it's, it's going to be like a, a, a positive atmosphere, and, and we're aiming our, our kind of calls at the Israeli government. We're telling them to end this apartheid system, um, and, and that's, that's, a, that's the key kind of objective, is, is to call on the, the Israeli government to do something. But in the absence of that, absolutely we want support from Irish politicians, and Irish politicians are going to come and join us, and then 
hopefully we can see Ireland do something later at a multilateral level with its partners around the world. So for the moment, our calls are on the Israeli government to, to do something about this apartheid system. And we're asking people to come and show their solidarity with the Palestinians. Okay, Kevin, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Kevin Nocton is uh, the campaign's officer with Amnesty International Ireland. That protest uh, outside of Leinster House at one o'clock tomorrow if you do want to join with Amnesty. Now, some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Thanks to Patricia, who's been WhatsApping, saying she bought a slice pan yesterday in the local shop in Anagassan. 320 for a slice pan. Wow, that really is uh, very, very expensive. Thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Patricia. Somebody else uh, in touch with us about the price of groceries asking if there's anywhere in the Athboy Mead area where we can buy directly from farmers. Uh, maybe that would cut down uh, on the cost uh, if it was permissible. Uh, Matthew Andrade in touch with us saying, Israel, 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 my butt. They are backed up uh, by America and we roll out the red carpet for the Americans. Uh, they can stop it if they wanted to, says Matthew Andrade. Uh, back to the price of groceries. Somebody says, Michael, all retailers uh, have jumped on the bandwagon. I see Aldi prices have gone up week by week with 10 cent increases. Very subtle, but also saw three months ago Firelighters, one ninety nine a month ago, two twenty nine, two forty nine. now, I think, uh, says Pat in Navin. Thanks indeed, Pat, uh, for sharing that with us. Anne and Terman Fecken was in touch with us uh, yesterday. I didn't get to it. I'll get to that uh, call uh, just after the headlines, Anne. Uh, and uh, Apologies for delaying it, uh, but we'll do that straight after the headlines for you. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Yes, apologies uh, to Anne in Terman Fecken for the delay, bringing your comment. Uh, sometimes they're delayed, but we really do try to read out all of the comments uh, that come to us. Anne says that she's a pensioner and she's a full-time carer for her husband. He's in a wheelchair. Uh, she receives €131 Euro a week carer's allowance, uh, but she doesn't get the fuel allowance because of her pension. In order to bring her husband into the Lord's Hospital for his appointments, she has to book a wheelchair taxi. That costs €50 return. Sometimes, she says, her husband has two appointments in the month, so that's €100 out of the carer's allowance. But there can be a problem with uh, the taxis because you can't book in advance and she has to phone in the morning of the appointment and as a result of only one wheelchair taxi in the town, he mightn't be able to take us. It's all down to chance and then I have to cancel my husband's hospital appointment. The disability services are very efficient. Thank you, Anne in Terman Fecken. We'll add that to the list of complaints that we've had this week about transport for people with disabilities and to the list of comments that have prompted us to ask, what year is it? Let's uh, talk uh, about uh, immigration uh, once again. And I'm sure you've seen the 41 tents as it is now on Mount Street in Dublin outside the International Protection Office. This is, of course, predominantly men uh, who have come here looking for international protection, but can't be housed, can't be provided with any form of accommodation, which we know from the High Court decision recently is illegal. Let's speak to John Lannan, who's the CEO of Duras and works with immigrants on an ongoing basis. John, this is unprecedented and illegal. How do you think the government is going to respond? Because I think it's going to have to indicate its response in the coming days. 
Absolutely, and good morning to you and listeners. Um, this is quite an unprecedented situation. I mean, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that the state is accommodating 83,000 people now who are either beneficiaries of temporary protection from Ukraine or are international protection applicants from other parts of the world. But right now, we're going to the latest report a couple of days ago, there are 582 asylum seekers without state-provided accommodation. As you said, one case was brought against the court which found that the failure of the minister to provide what I call material reception conditions to, to one particular asylum seeker was unlawful. Now, the government do say that they're working on this. They're working on prov- um, providing accommodation to all asylum seekers. We know that the numbers arriving have gone down since the start of the year, but they're still in this situation where they're failing to provide accommodation and they're going to have to address that. And and we have to say as well, it's not just accommodation. It's um, the the reception conditions directive, which... um, uh, which which indicates or which says what should be provided to asylum seekers and um, requires that applicants have access to housing, to food, to clothing, to healthcare. Um, and, and that's not happening for those 582 people that are now in those tents or trying to find another corner for themselves to, to rest and keep warm in. Mm. It's a situation uh, I think most people in the country would feel that nobody should be forced into, but the is no option for the 582 people you mentioned. No, in, indeed. And, and while, you know, we, we do you know, lament the fact that there are over 11,000 people in Ireland now who, who are homeless and none of them should be in that situation. Um, the Reception Conditions Directive also um, states that particular attention needs to be prov- um, given to vulnerable people, um, especially unaccompanied minors and victims of torture. We have young men, we have um, people who are very close to the age of 18 out there on the streets. We have people who are victims of, of torture who have come here seeking protection and they are really vulnerable out there. They have no... Um, networks, they have no knowledge of where to go in many cases, they don't even speak the language and as I said the state does have an obligation to keep them safe. Right, Uh, and there are no winners in this, I mean that's a a dreadful situation in itself, Uh, I think we're uh, spending about 400 million every three months uh, on accommodation, but we're failing 582 people. As you said, we've 80,000 Ukrainians in the country uh, alone, but we were told to expect 200,000. But a, a lot of people are staying in hotels and tourist beds, if you like. Uh, the estimate now is that that's going to cost the economy 1.1 billion euro. Uh, and they're also suggesting, I've seen the Irish Times today, that up to 10,000 tourism jobs could be displaced because of the hotel bed shortages. And that's before you get to the knock-on uh, effect with people doing business uh, it, it, on the basis that tourists will be in their towns. No, indeed, there, there's no doubt that the lack of a sustainable sustainable or longer term plan for refugee reception and accommodation is having knock-on effects now. There is an over-reliance on hotel accommodation, particularly for people from Ukraine. I believe that up to a third of tourist beds outside of Dublin are now being used to accommodate refugees or protection applicants. And while that may be fine for a hotel in that they're... Uh 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Have all of their rooms occupied and the tourism industry is, um, we, we can see, um, indicating that it is a about to take a significant hit because all of the, the downstream businesses that rely on people coming into the country over the summer are, are being affected. So we, we, we see that there's, there's a need and, and has been a need now for, for many, many months. We, we and, and others have been indicating for the last year that the government needs to put um, a plan in place, needs to have somebody in charge of ensuring that there is a strategy to address all of this because, you know, we, we have the capacity, we have the place, there are options in terms of derelict buildings, vacant homes, mm. the potential to build um, modular units. All of these things can be done, but as time goes on, it's um, the, the crisis is growing and we've got people who are suffering as a consequence either on the streets or in poor and suitable accommodation. Mm. Is it that we have good intentions uh, but uh, we fall down on delivery? Uh, those modular homes, for example, uh, were to be in situ last November, weren't they? Um, they were. Um, it's it's a year now since those modular homes were first spoken about, but we're waiting for the first seven sites to, to come on stream. We've been promised that there will be, that pods are being prepared for 2,800 people, um, which is still quite a small number in the overall context. I think the response, the initial response of government to the um, arrival of people from Ukraine was very positive. The ongoing response from people, ordinary people from communities, from civil society, the length and breadth of the the country um, has and continues to be really positive as well. But there's a lack of resourcing, there's a lack of consultation with local communities and businesses and as I said, there's an over-reliance on short-term unsuitable accommodation without Mm. a plan for how we're going to move forward from that. And we must bear in mind, I mean, even as we look at the news this morning and the the, um, the, the images and, and of um, missiles and bombs being landed on Kyiv um, again in Ukraine that sadly this war isn't ending and um, we're, we're going to see more and more people arriving in the country mm. seeking protection here. Yeah, well it's a very dangerous place to be and that's why people are, are, are leaving it in the volumes that they are uh, and uh, I don't know, maybe uh, government uh, should be 
better uh, able to predict how long it would take to deliver modular housing if there are problems uh, with planning uh, apart from construction and all that because uh, building houses can be difficult Uh, but having said that uh, if there are delays because uh, of planning as well as construction and all of that uh, should we be uh, looking at how we house people in a a different way I think I I saw in the UK they're going to bring in a, a massive barge uh, which would obviously float on the water and wouldn't have to be constructed on land, at least, uh, to house refugees? Well, we, we've got to ensure that whatever we do um, meets the basic needs of people who are arriving here and that it um, is human rights compliant, um, essentially. Right now, we're not doing that mm. with homelessness, with the types of conditions, indeed, that... that um, many people are living in. So the government has to um, has to get more proactive about um, exploring options and bringing these into use. The problem we've had over the last year is that um, the, the ever-increasing reliance on the short-term options. Now, again, there have been very positive moves in that the, the all-for-home schemes, initially starting with the Irish Red Cross and, and their... Um, request for people to, to pledge a home or to pledge a room, moving on then and where we're at at the moment where local authorities have those um, schemes. Th- those are helping as well. More can be done, mm. as I said, around the vacant units, around some of the buildings that, again, local authorities can identify because the knowledge of what can be brought into use exists at local level. So we need better communication and better um, engagement between government departments and local authorities. Okay, well hopefully something will happen to turn that situation around uh, where you've got 41 tents uh, and 582 people sleeping on the streets uh, because uh, they've no option. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, John. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme today. John Lannan is uh, the CEO of Duras. Let me bring you some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, James has been in touch about the price of toilet roll. and I, I actually just don't believe you, James, uh, so I'm not going to read out uh, the name of uh, the supermarket. It's not that I don't believe you. I think it must be a typo. Uh, because he says that in January of 2020, you could buy a packet of toilet roll for two ninety eight. dollars uh, Two weeks ago, it was on special at nine ninety nine. Nah, <laughs> that has to be a typo. Uh, there's no way it could be nine ninety nine a tenner for a packet of toilet roll. I, I don't think so. Uh, but uh, maybe you'd uh, let us know uh, yourself. Um, we'd Siobhan in touch with us. She says another issue regarding the GAA is uh, the restoration of the free pass to matches for OAPs. The pass was taken away during COVID and not restored. Is this how the GAA treats people who supported them for years? People who coached and looked after our underage youth in all kinds of conditions, many of whom today can't afford tickets uh, to these games who have free travel. Think of what this would mean if the GAA, in their wisdom, restored those passes to our senior citizens. Also, many pensioners who may not be computer literate find that they can no longer pay by cash. The GAA seem to be only interested in profit. Thank you, Siobhan, for that. Uh, Paddy, in touch with us yesterday, as I said, we tried to read out all of the comments, even if there is somewhat of a a delay. But Paddy was in touch with us. Uh, He's in Kells and he says, Eamon Ryan tells us all to use the buses. But in Carnaross and Kells town, uh, they're four miles uh, apart. 
uh, and there's a bus that goes on that road with no bus stop so people living on the road need to get into their cars and drive to town and do the shopping go to mass bring children to school and from school etc what is Eamon Ryan talking about Paddy and Navin in touch to say you can't stop or park outside the post office in Navin because of the bollards the narrow streets and roundabouts you have to park up the street and walk back a hundred metres uh, it's uh, some uh, fault he reckons with uh, the planning engineers or contractors who uh, designed and built the streets and roads in towns thank you indeed if you've been in touch just to remind you you can ring us 041-983-2000 if you want to make comment text or whatsapp 086-1800-658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Fine Gael has its own LGBTQ plus group. It's chaired uh, by the Cahirlach of uh, the Shannon Jerry Buttermer. And uh, Minister of State uh, Jennifer Carl McNeil is its vice chair. Senator Mary Siri Keary is also on the committee. The Irish Independent uh, reported yesterday that uh, this LGBTQ group has published a document on public services and has made a number of recommendations on how public services could improve the lives of many gay people in this country. It's looking at a a range of services across the board, health, housing and justice. For example, it's saying that there should be specific homeless accommodation for LGBTQ plus people. It also suggests that the census should be changed so that you could identify as transgender, non-binary and intersex. Uh, It's also saying that teachers and principals should also be taught LGBTQ plus awareness training, uh, the same applying to uh, members of Angarda Siakana, and that LGBTQ practices uh, in schools should form part of school inspections. All forms of conversion therapy and its advertising should be banned, according to this group, who also says that same-sex parents should have the same recognition as other parents and they also want the drug PrEP to be made more widely available. It's uh, something uh, that uh, people take uh, in order to prevent uh, contracting HIV. Let's uh, speak to Parik Rice who's the Policy and Research Manager with LGBT Ireland. Good morning to you Parik and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I understand the Fine Gael Group uh, consulted with you to some degree on these recommendations. Yeah, so for the Fine Gael LGBT group, I think consulted with all of the, the LGBT organisations across the country. Um, so we went in and we met with them and we kind of laid out some of our concerns and some of the things that, that we thought uh, could be improved and, and, and some of those feature in the, the 56 recommendations that are included in, in this kind of substantial document with really well put together uh, by the group. And I suppose a few of them would, would stand out to me and, and I think there, there are some really notable calls in there. Um, first one would be that there's a call to end HIV transmission in Ireland by 2030, which I think is a really great goal to set uh, and one that we need to, to work towards. Um, I know other countries are, are heading this way. Uh, there's report recently that, that Australia are heading to almost zero HIV transmissions. This is uh, one that, that is achievable, uh, but ambitious, but I think one it's really great to see in there. And we've made such, such changes in that whole landscape uh, around HIV uh, in the last while with rapid testing, as you mentioned, prevention drugs, post-exposure drugs, and... Um, and there's huge progress that could be made there. Um, really a change landscape um, in terms of, of HIV and a really key one there. Uh, I suppose one of, one of the key messages we often hear about is this thing called U equals U, where 
if you're undetectable, uh, it's untransmissible. And, um, and as a result, you can't pass HIV on if, if your virus is so low. So it's really great to see uh, Fine Gael Group calling for, for that zero uh, transmission by 2030. Uh, and we would welcome. It's also, I think, really great to see some of the, some of the calls in there around um, hate crime. We've had a, a really, I think, tough year in terms of hate crime. We've seen, a, according to the Gardaí stats, a 30% increase in hate crimes in the last year. And so this really needs to be tackled um, and this call in there for kind of an, an anti-hate task force. Uh, and ourselves and, and other organisations have been calling for public education on this um, alongside the passage of, of the hate crime bill, which is, is really crucial, but also improved reporting, better training for the Gardaí, um, and, and just tackling the kind of the root causes of, of this hate that we're seeing. Mm. What are they? I mean, I'm not sure what the root causes of uh, this hate are. I, I sense from all of the recommendations that I, I read out a, a moment ago that I was reading about in the Irish Independent yesterday, there is uh, some uh, real problems with discrimination because each of them seem uh, to be aimed at tackling that discrimination. Yeah, and that's the first thing we know. Like There, there was a report from, from the CSO uh, two years ago, um, or a couple of years ago, that said 33% of LGBT people had experienced some form of discrimination. Uh, and we know that we've, we've made huge progress in Ireland over the last 30 years. Um, but there still is elements of, of discrimination, of homophobia, um, that, that do persist, uh, unfortunately. Um, and it spans the kind of everyday reality for some people that's from kind of the slurs that go unchallenged up to the kind of the extreme levels of violence and and unfortunately that is uh, a reality in Ireland and we often say you know mm. we've won the right to walk down the aisle but we still look over our shoulder and we walk down the street um, mm. so we, we do need to, to tackle uh, this um, I, I'm sure that's true Parik uh, uh, but at the same time I think things probably uh, started to improve from the 1990s and are a lot better now than they would have been let's say in the 70s or 80s or before that uh, oh. Yeah, 100%. I think, I think we've, made, we've made huge progress. There's, but, there's but, absolutely no doubt about that. But not for transgenders. Uh, there seems to be real hatred uh, for a, a particularly vulnerable group of people in society. Yeah, and, and, the, and the trans community is a very, very small community in Ireland, about maybe 1% of the population. But, but, but trans people are kind of constantly uh, debated, um, here kind of online attacks, um, a lot of online hate. Um, and we've got a long way to go in terms of understanding and building up tolerance uh, and changing views and opinions uh, around trans issues mm-hmm. and improving services as well, access to to, to healthcare services for trans people. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of work that does need to be uh, done over, over the time ahead. Um, I'm sure there is, but of, of, of all the recommendations that I've seen, I think the one that would be resisted most, if you like, uh, would be to change the senses uh, to allow you to identify a, as you do. Would you agree? Oh, oh yeah, we 100% agree with changing the senses. No, I'm, so, I'm sorry, but would you agree that it's the one that would be most resisted? I'm not sure. Uh, okay. To be honest, I, I, I think there is room for, for change in the census. Uh, we made a very detailed submission on this issue. Um, so the, the census currently doesn't capture gender identity mm. or sexual orientation. Uh, the Senegal group have called for, for a wider category than gender, but we also think sexual orientation should be captured. Um, so of the equality yeah. grounds, of the equality grounds, the nine equality grounds, eight of them are captured uh, in the census and sexuality isn't. Um, and also the gender grounds just allows you currently to record it as uh, male or female, but we know people identify as non-binary, we know mm. people are intersex, we know people are, are trans. And I think we think this should capture, like the, the, the census should capture 
the reality of life in Ireland. It, it should take a snapshot yeah. of what life in Ireland is like at, at this moment. By the way, when I said most resisted by a small number of people who will be very vocal, uh, but therein can lie a problem for yeah, society. But, but the, the one point on that is, is, yeah. is that we've seen other countries have done this. So the, U, the UK have, have changed their census, the US have changed their census, uh, and the OECD is it's best practice now to capture gender and sexual orientation and um, in the census, and it does have an impact because all mm. of our data flows from the state level data flows from the census all the way down. Um, so we need to have questions that, that do capture the diversity of, of our lives um, and our lived experiences. And until we do that, we're invisible in the census data, and I don't think that that's good enough really anymore. Okay, and training for teachers, for principals, for Gardaí, uh, I take it if that training is needed, there's obviously problems, there's a reason why they need to be trained. Yeah, so I think we think that the landscape has changed um, and, and people need, as we just talked about, we need to have better awareness, better understanding, uh, higher levels of tolerance. Um, we often, in terms of the Gardaí, have called that this hate crime legislation is coming. Guards need to be aware of that. There needs to be sensitivity training around that and an understanding about how our community is impacted by things like the hate crimes that we mentioned. So I think I think it's really important that, that all of our all of our state services that are people working there have access to good quality training uh, and updated knowledge on, on, on the legislation that changes as well as how the community has changed um, and a good general understanding. So I think it's, I think it's, it's yeah, it's really important that there is, is that education, that training and also the kind of bigger kind of public awareness campaigns as well, mm. particularly when we have, we have big changes in society. Um, it's really important that, yeah, that people have the, kind of the latest knowledge and, and, and update information. And I think, Teachers are often calling for that, and I think SCARD as well are often looking for, for, for better better training and are reaching out to, to organisations for those. But it would be great to see that resourced and mm. that implemented kind of across the board so that all of our, our public servants um, okay. do have that training. Can you explain why specific homeless accommodation is needed? Is it dangerous for the gay community to look for accommodation in a shelter, for example? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated issue and I think that there's lots of challenges around it. I, I recently attended a, a seminar on, on youth LGBT homelessness and we discussed things about young people who have to leave home when they come out as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and, and the challenges they face because of that, of, of maybe having to leave home early or dropping out of school. Um, but also in terms of just feeling safe in the emergency accommodation that they access and um, some people said they, that they didn't feel safe when they were in, in certain accommodation and that maybe having either a dedicated um, homeless shelter or somewhere that was that was where there was a kind of a strong emphasis on kind of LGBT inclusion um, there that, that, that people um, who'd experience homelessness had said that this would be something they, they would um, find beneficial. Um, and I think, yeah, when people maybe who are uh, trans and are, are transitioning at the time uh, that said that they might feel more comfortable in a space that was was either exclusively LGBT or, or like primarily LGBT. Um, but it's certainly something to, to consider and something that probably should be, be talked about and, and discussed some more. Because you know, there are real challenges in terms of accommodation and in terms of the availability um, of spaces for people. But, but we do know in, in data from, from across, particularly in, in the US and also in the UK, um, that there is higher levels of homelessness among the LGBT community and some of that relates to people um, leaving home because of safety issues but there are some complicated issues um, and the community is um, affected by homelessness in sometimes in unique ways uh, and that should be I suppose acknowledged and mm. um, services should, should cater for those as well mm. um, but there's ways of prevent. I think on, on homelessness we talk about prevention and um, providing support to family 
um, when there are issues where there is conflict based around someone's gender or sexual orientation, that we can support the family unit and and help people through that. Um, you often hear people saying, you know, they, the the LGBT person might have spent 10 years thinking about coming out and thinking themselves about being LGBT and coming to accept it. And then they kind of tell the, their family members and they sometimes we kind of expect them to accept it all of a sudden when it's taken us a long time to accept it ourselves. So okay. sometimes mm. there needs to be support for the family and for the, for the wider community. Okay. And I think that we can prevent some of that homelessness as well. I think uh, all of the issues uh, raised in this document are complicated, Parig, in that uh, it's much easier, it would seem, to aspire to equality than to realise equality. Yeah, yeah, and I think we, we need to implement a lot of this as well, and that's the other mm. thing. We you know Ireland has sometimes this implementation deficit disorder. I think we need to policies like this need to be put into practice and we'll, we'll be calling on Fine Gaelic government to, to implement these 56 recommendations as a matter of urgency. Alright, we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Porrick Rice is a Policy and Research Manager with LGBT Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. There's 11,500 registered charities in this country. Do you believe that or, or not? Having said that, uh, I think we've always been very charitable as an organisation, but what do we think of the charities and the work they do? Well, the charities regulator set out to do that uh, by a survey of 2,000 adults, which was conducted on its behalf by Amoric Research, and Possibly not too surprising, 89% of us made a donation to a charity over the course of the last year. There's a lot more to this survey, though. Let's hear from Helen Martin, who's uh, the chief executive of uh, the charities regulator and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you. uh, And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's almost nine out of ten adults donating to charity. Uh, Some... uh, give cash. Uh, Others uh, do donate, uh, but they give goods instead of cash. And there's been a change in the way that people have been donating over the last couple of years. Yeah, thanks, Michael. What we've seen is that the number of people who are donating money uh, has fallen by around 15%, but there's been a corresponding rise in the number of people that are donating goods. And that's perhaps maybe an indication of, you know, the cost of living crisis, people not having as much as much cash, and but also people being able to get out and about and being able to call into charity shops. Because what we also saw is that people are not only donating to, to charity shops, but those that were surveyed were also um, buying from charity shops as well. So again, that probably comes back to other things that are going on in Ireland at the moment, you know, around sustainable uh, ways of shopping and clothing and, and things like that. Okay, people want to know where their money is going. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a really big thing. What we saw actually interesting enough is back in 2020 when we did a, a survey originally, that for around 65% of adults that were surveyed at that time said that, you know, trust and confidence, the level of trust and confidence that they had in a charity was a key a key factor when they were donating. But that's actually gone um, right up now. So we're, we're up at 80, over 8% for that. Um, and what that's really saying to us is that uh, people are, are looking to charities to be more transparent um, in terms of what they're doing with the funds that are donated. And then also they want to see the evidence. You know, they want to see what a, what a charity has done. Um, I think it's, it's, it's good news for charities in a sense because, you know, if there's opportunities there for all charities to get out there and let people know what they've been doing in, we'll say, the previous six months, 12 months. 
um, but also to be fully transparent about how they're how they're spending their funds. Mm. And I should say, Michael, we do have a register of charities, and there's eleven thousand five hundred charities. I am on that. Over five hundred of them would be there in your in your own area there in Meath and Loud. So um, that information, uh, charities provide their information, and it's put up on our, our register of charities. And you'll see financial information from charities, and you'll also see details around their activities, number of volunteers they have, that kind of information, and also around the staffing that they have, and um, if they have staff. Not a lot, you know. Some charities won't have staff; they won't have paid employees. They'll be entirely volunteer-based, but others will will have some staff. And you've looked at the type of charities that people decide to donate to out of the 11,500 charities that are registered in the country. Yeah, that hasn't actually changed a lot since we looked at this um, a number of years ago. So the top one is um, health-related charities, medical and health-related charities. Um, number two is your homeless or refuge services. Three are your local community organisations. Um, and then also after that, you've got children and youth services. And then fifth would be animal rescue and welfare. Okay, and you mentioned people donating uh, clothes and other items to charity shops. That's a, a, a growing sector, isn't it? That certainly is, yeah. And um, that, that's certainly a way in which a number of charities, you know, do get get donations and much needed donations um, for their services. And that would have really suffered during COVID when they would have to shut those uh, those uh, those shops down um, when we were in lockdown and with all, also with the other restrictions. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's important to remember that we do get, you know, we do get um, stickers and bags in through our doors. But it looks like the public are, are hearing our message on that and making sure that before, you know, if they intend to give to charity, make sure that you check the register of charities, which is on charitiesregulator.ie. And that's really just to make sure that the organisation that you're planning to, to give your donated goods to is, in fact, a registered charity. Okay, fewer people giving money, but uh, as you said, when they donate, they're giving more. It's €169 on average a year that people give when they do donate financially. Yeah, you know, and that's that's good to see, you know, that 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 money um, is going up, particularly given that we do have a a cost of living crisis, you know. Um, But, you know, they're much needed funds for, for charities. And of course, you know, charities are competing against each other in order to get the attention of the public and to get funds. So I suppose what we've seen through this particular survey is that, you know, the charities that can be more transparent and, you know, publish their, their accounts on their website, be really clear about, you know, any staff they've employed and salaries and what they spend in admin and all of that kind mm. of stuff really gives the public confidence. Yeah, people do. We often get complaints about the salaries uh, in charities and indeed admin. You hear from people who say, I gave 10 euro and I got a letter every month for the next 12 months and I'm wondering how much they spent on the paper, the stamp and the administration of it. Yeah, well, I think what we have to remember is that there is, for, for some charities, particularly those who require staff, um, there is that necessity that they have staff, and they are competing with um, with 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 the private sector as well in order to get staff. It's a very competitive market. So, you know, it, what what you really what what we'd say to the public is inform yourself about the charity, and um, because what you'll find is in those situations, yes, there might be administration costs. Somebody has to be in the back office taking requests for for services from people who really need their help and things like that. So that that information should all be available from charities, and there is a certain amount of that um, available on the register of charities. So charities are providing um, transparency around that. I think it's just maybe the public don't know where to look for it. Mm. Um, so and certainly our register is something to look for and also charities on websites as well. Right, uh, and all of the details are, are there and you're there to regulate uh, how the money is being used within the charities. But overall, people like charities. They're, 
uh, of the view that they're important and that the work that they do is hugely significant? Yeah, absolutely, and that came through really strongly in in the survey, Michael. You know that that you know people really, as you said, they see charity is really important. They see them having a significant impact in our society, and that's why it's really important that they're supported um, in their work. So while we regulate charities, we do also support the sector as well in terms of making sure they know um, you know what governance, good governance looks like, what the standards are. We help them, you know, with all the guidance materials and things that we provide. Um, but also we have a compliance um, a compliance side as well where we have to ensure that charities are complying. Um, and what we saw in the survey is that people maybe weren't as aware that we do a lot of compliance work. And um, so there's a lot of work that goes on there that the charities regulator carries out um, behind the scenes in um, getting charities to comply. So we, what we try to do in the first instance with, with most charities is um, where we see that they're not complying, we try and get them into compliance because we're really cognizant of the fact they're providing, in most cases, really essential services to local communities um, and to particular vulnerable groups. Mm. And we've seen, unfortunately, some terrible stories, uh, which really has nothing to do with the sector, but uh, the rogue behaviour of some individuals over the years. Uh, I'm sure that has a, a terrible impact on people's perceptions of charities. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think most people are able to see, though, that they're individuals. They're individuals within individual organisations, and it's not unique to the charity sector. And um, but there's no doubt that it, you know, it must it must impact, particularly those who are volunteering in the charity sector. You know, that's how the sector largely runs: it's through volunteers, people giving up their their free time for a cause. And um, so it's really important that we that we keep it in you know we keep it in perspective, but also that those cases where they come along are dealt with. Um, and that we use the, our full powers that are available to us in terms of investigating what went wrong as well. And that's why we've got a focus in the charity sector on governance. So all charities will be aware of the charity's governance code. And what we always say to charities, that's very much a tool for them. You know, it's the best way, it, it sets out the kind of standards that they should be looking to achieve when they're running their charity. So if you run your charity well, mm. and you know, you're taking minutes at meetings, you're, you're logging all your decisions, you're making sure you get your finances and that as, as board members you understand what's going on in your charity, then hopefully in the event that you know, you're unfortunate enough for something like this to happen to your charity, it's something that you'll be able to navigate through because you'll have, you'll have good governance in place, you'll, have, you'll be running yourselves well. Um, and you'll be able to deal with with those crises when they arise. And local is king. I take it that's because uh, people will know the people working in local charities uh, and feel that they can trust them. Uh, and generally then, uh, and separately, regardless of whether it's a local or a national or an international charity, if... Uh, you donate to a charity, you tend to remain loyal to that charity, according to the research. Yeah, that's that's certainly what we've seen. And I think the, the what we saw there was that when people said they had changed, you know, over the last few years, so maybe where they were giving to a different charity or um, an additional charity, it did tend to be um, that they were reacting to maybe a crisis, so like uh, the war in Ukraine or, or covid but generally, people do tend to stay loyal, as you say, Michael, to the particular charity. And I think what that's about and what we saw in the survey was that um, really the key driver for people's involvement with charities what they had, it was that, and, and in donating to charities was, was that they had some kind of personal connection with that charity. Maybe it's that the charity assisted you know, a family friend or something in the past and, and they wanted to get involved. Mm. OK, and I suppose the main message uh, that you're trying to get to people today is if they have any concerns, they can look at a particular charity through your website, the Charity Regulators uh, website. 
Yeah, charitiesregulator.ie. There's a register there. You, you can find out everything. And it's really just to say to the public to make sure you inform yourself um, you know, about the organisations that you're giving to. And charities in Ireland have done great work in terms of the submissions they're making to us and the information they're making available to us. And it's all there on, on the register. Okay, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much. Helen Martin is uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Charities Regulator. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Liam Hennessy of Slane Garda Station joins us for this week's report and we're going to begin with a burglary that occurred in Trim. Good morning, Michael. On the Friday the 15th of May last, a home was broken into in Kiltoom in Trim. It occurred at midday and some personal items of property were taken from the house. My colleagues at Trim Garda Station wish to speak with anyone who heard anything unusual in the Kiltoom, in the Kiltoom area at lunchtime on Friday last to make contact with them. OK, uh, we go to our day, the Drogheda Road, last Thursday night, Friday morning, was it? And uh, some items stolen from a vehicle there. That's right. Between the 4th and 5th of May last, a white Vauxhall van was broken into at the car park beside Lidl on the Drogheda Road in RD. Some Milwaukee power tools were stolen from this van and the guards in RD wished to speak with anyone who saw anything unusual in the area or indeed were offered any of these tools for sale to make contact with them. I'm sure um, people will uh, be very interested in cheap tools, uh, but uh, there's obviously a huge price to that, uh, and I'm sure the Gardaí would be delighted to return them to the rightful owner. Uh, We go to Ashburn next, uh, where a vehicle was taken on Thursday. On Thursday the 4th of May, a white Toyota Vitz hatchback car was stolen from outside a house at Brindley Park Square in Ashburn. This happened in the early hours of the morning, shortly before 4am. My colleagues in Ashburn are anxious to speak with anyone who can help them solve this crime. OK, we're going to our day uh, for uh, the next incident. I'm sure this always raises eyebrows and uh, causes uh, you to wonder what uh, the objective and intention of stealing number plates are. An unusual one that on Sunday the 7th of May last, um, a set of number plates were stolen from a car which was parked in the car park in Bridge Street in RD. This crime occurred during the day on Sunday. My colleagues in RD are anxious to speak um, with anyone who can offer them assistance. Okay, uh, to Kells next and a burglary that occurred on Friday just gone. A burglary took place at McGee's Cross, Cross Akeel, just outside Kells, last Friday during the day. It occurred between 11am and 4pm on that day. Entry was gained by breaking the glass in the rear door of the house. An amount of money was stolen from the house and the Gardaí at Kells wished to speak to anyone who saw anything unusual in the McGee's Cross area at this time. OK, and we're going to lay down a, a number of thefts from cars. Uh, this happened on Friday of last week. That's right. On the 5th of May last, a number of cars were broken into in Leytown. These crimes occurred in the Wheatfield Manor, Maidenhays Road and Maidenhays Square areas. Three cars were broken into in the early hours of the morning between 1am and 2am. A grey Mazda, a grey Renault Captor and a red Volkswagen Golf were broken into. If anyone 
saw or heard anything in these areas, we're asking them to come forward and speak with my colleagues at Leytown Garda Station. Okay, thank you indeed, Garda Liam Hennessy of Slain Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, some comments uh, to bring you. Uh, Great to be getting so many calls and texts uh, from people. We had Betty Daly in touch with us about charities and she says uh, that uh, the leaders of some of uh, these charities should have their mega pay cut. It's not worth helping because that's where the money ends up. Uh, She says she bought a goat from Gola or Goethe or one of these uh, only to be bombarded by uh, stable and fodder. Uh, she says, I give my gift to someone I think needs a little help. Uh, thanks, uh, Betty, for some cynicism in uh, the charity sector there, which I suppose is what we're hearing uh, from uh, that research as well. Uh, a lot of people wondering where their money goes and wants to know that it goes directly to the cause that they're supporting. Uh, Avril in RD says she shops in Super Value in RD all of the time. Uh, she says great value, but uh, she likes to shop local. But having said that, everything is going up in price. It seems to be the same everywhere, doesn't it? Uh, she says she'd never dream of going to Dundalk or, or Drogheda to do her shopping, but the price in the local shop uh, is definitely increasing. Everything from cat food to shampoo has increased, and dramatically so. She says, I use the vouchers each week on my shopping, which I find very beneficial. Thank you, Avril. Uh, I, I know that stuff is going up, but I still don't believe uh, that a super market is charging a tenner for a packet of toilet roll uh, as James was telling us earlier on I really do think that must have been a a typo Uh, talking about money being spent uh, John in touch with us about uh, the old council building on Narrow West Street Um, uh, what about the 8 million building Uh, actually I'd imagine um, that's the old uh, DIY place um, that uh, was to become a a car park the the old council building on Fair Street is uh, 12, bit, 12 million being spent on that. Uh, John's talking about uh, the 8 million uh, in Narrow West Street. Uh, thank you uh, indeed uh, for that. Now, uh, the doll will return today, as you know, and uh, we'll be hearing about uh, the price of groceries with that Sinn Féin motion a little bit later on in the day, and uh, it'll be back to the cut and thrust. And I, I suppose at this stage, uh, there are some things that you might expect and some things that perhaps you wouldn't. If, if I can, if you let me uh, check it out. Um, and then just straight to the issue raised by Deputy Murphy. And again, I want to declare about what I, I meant uh, last week. Um, it's the job of Dáil Éireann to hold ministers to account. And of course ministers should come in here um, and make statements and answer questions in relation to their ministerial responsibilities. But this matter definitely doesn't relate to Deputy Minister Collins' ministerial responsibilities. It relates to events of the Brough Area Committee 16 years ago. Um, and that's a different matter in my view. Uh, and if it's the case... Well, well, Thank you. Well, Dep- Deputy, if, 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 if TDs are going to come in here... Same with Damien English. If TDs are Robert going to Troy. come in here um, and, and account for their actions... Uh, that are not related uh, to their ministerial functions. Why is it, Deputy, you didn't come in here 
uh, you detained two women against their will okay. in Jobstown no, 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 several no, no, years we're, ago. We're on our, we're, thank you. We're on order of business in relation to... Thank you. Deputy it found you not, scandalous. It found Another you not, abuse of privilege. It, it found you not guilty of a particular offence. Of, of detaining Tisha, the two women. Thank you. We're on order of business. It found you not guilty of a particular offence. Thank you. But given given Thank that you. case, given that case was even more recent, given that case was even more recent uh, than the Brough Area Local okay. Area Committee meeting, why is it not appropriate for, for Deputy, uh, okay. Deputy Murphy to come in here uh, and take questions on that Thank matter? Thank you. We've, ha- we've had the questions. Right, as I said, uh, maybe you weren't uh, expecting to hear that uh, from uh, the Taoiseach. He was, of course, referring uh, to that incident in Jobstown, a uh, water charges protest, which saw uh, then Minister Joan Burton and a colleague of hers uh, being, uh, uh, I suppose, feeling unable uh, to leave a a car for some period of time. There was a lot of criticism about that protest and Paul Murphy, who was one of uh, the organisers of uh, the protest. Just interesting, by the way, because since those comments by the Taoiseach, Paul Murphy actually wrote to the Ceann Corla of the Dáil and said he will come in and take questions on that Jobstown protest if Niall Collins comes into the doll and takes questions from TDs uh, about uh, his uh, planning application. Uh, something else uh, that we didn't get to, uh, and while we have a minute to spare before we finish up today, uh, is this interesting perception of where the Good Friday Agreement stands today. Taoiseach, the, for the last number of weeks, obviously, people have been celebrating the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement was a phenomenal uh, international uh, agreement which has created... Uh, peace for those uh, 25 years. But the Good Friday Agreement is not a living document. The Good Friday Agreement is defunct. The Assembly is on the floor. The Executive is uh, is broken. The North-South Ministerial Council is AWOL at the moment. And there is no urgency in terms of the government's approach to fixing it. The government is a guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement and the government is not guaranteeing the Good Friday Agreement. The celebrations for the Good Friday Agreement are akin to having a birthday party for a person who hasn't got a pulse. And I believe this government should be absolutely ashamed of the fact that we have uh, a a situation in the North where there's no democratic institutions operating as well. And in, in terms of the legacy bill, This bill gives an amnesty for the British state in terms of murders that happened in Ireland for the last 50 years. It is the son and heir of British murder and collusion over that 50-year period. And again, I'm just shocked by the government's very, very careful wording on this. The government should be stating very clearly that it will bring the British government to the European Court of Human Rights if it proceeds with the legacy bill. That legacy bill is likely to be finished uh, in the House of Commons at the end of this month and to be signed into royal assent by King Charles, uh, which uh, is incredible. The British are going the opposite direction in terms of reconciliation with this country, in terms of uh, fixing the wrongs that they, uh, they're doing, and the government is standing idly by. Yeah, that's uh, Padder Tobin making those points in uh, the last week uh, and ahead of uh, the coronation of uh, the aforementioned King Charles. Uh, by the way, Tom uh, was texting about uh, the Taoiseach's uh, contribution last week uh, to Paul Murphy saying even for Leo that was low it was a court case thank you Tom uh, we had somebody else in their local shop uh, and they say that uh, there was a packet of cereal for six euro <laughs> oh god thanks Elaine Elliott that's our programme for today Megan Maguire Research Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.